0: Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done, perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, it is our first ever Tuesday Roundup. We're going to be trying this out for the next few weeks, so let us know how you feel about it. For today's show, I'm here with my colleague Julia Karen and Washington City Papers Alex Coma to talk through new details about how D.C. government handles sexual harassment complaints. The short answer is not great. Plus, Metro is facing severe cuts, and D.C. could help save them, but will it? And we'll end with a little bit of comic relief, one-star reviews of the Washington Monument. <laughs> Today's Tuesday, October 3rd. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. Julia, I know that you've been tracking the way that DC is handling sexual harassment claims. In short, it sounds like
1: it is not doing a great job. What can you tell us? All right, so you would be correct in assuming that uh, in terms of handling complaints, it is mixed at best. Uh, There was some fabulous reporting from The Washington Post, so shout out to Megan Flynn and Michael Bryce Sadler, uh, guests on the show. They combed through some data, and what they found was that roughly 300 D.C. employees have lodged complaints of sexual harassment in city government since Muriel Bowser's anti-sexual harassment order took effect in 2017. That is a high number, Obviously, my view on that is like you should be able to be in a workplace and not have any sexual harassment. So Emily Martin, who's the vice president of education and workplace justice at the National Women's Law Center, uh, she said the fact that three hundred people came forward with these kind of complaints, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problem. It's actually potentially a good thing because it means that employees are then comfortable coming forward, and as long as the complaints result in actual accountability. like That is actually a good thing. I mean, people are saying, you know what? I trust the process uh, as it were, and let's see how it plays out. Unfortunately, (laughs) I don't know that that's the case. Um, The mayor's office of legal counsel is the place that has all of this data that tracks all of this. And there were some pretty gruesome and not ideal details. There was a case uh, including 11 women who accused a department health employee that they nicknamed the perv, uh, just perv, right, uh, of inappropriate touching and conversations, as well as uh, masturbation by placing his hands inside his pants pockets during face-to-face meetings. So uh, the Post reviewed 290 complaints from uh, December 2017 to June 2023, and just under 30% were substantiated basically in full or in part. So 30% is... I guess, kind of a high number? I don't know. What do you guys think in terms of substantiation of these claims?
2: Yeah, something that really jumped out to me, and as you say, the post excellent reporting about this, is that, you know, in the wording of the mayor's order um, issued back in 2017 is a kind of a big reason why you're seeing even cases that feel, you know, pretty cut and dry, all things considered, not being substantiated. You know, essentially, uh, people making allegations need to prove that this harassment was both severe and pervasive. Number one, kind of a subjective standard to hit. You know, what's severe exactly? Um, How pervasive are we talking here? And that's language that even the mayor um, has admitted in, uh, in her response to this article, says, yeah, we're gonna take a look at that. I mean, she has essentially, in the wake of the revelations about john falcicchio her former top advisor um who has had two different women um within the dc government um have uh, sexual harassment complaints against him substantiated by that very own uh mayor's office of legal counsel uh that was you know taking some of this data in in the wake of all this she's promised change this seems like a fairly obvious you know way in which some of this change <laughs> could take form the the problem that the article also outlines is that you know it's really you know sort of incumbent on all of these agencies um, that are collecting these complaints to have a specific sexual harassment officer identified so that if you know you are within this agency you have a complaint to make you know who to take it to and you know something that we even saw within the Falcicchio scandal is that in some of you know the agencies that he oversaw because he oversaw multiple agencies uh, had a broad portfolio of responsibility there simply wasn't an identified person for these women to make reports to it delayed the process process by which they ended up coming forward and made it all that more complicated. And the story identifies that even in some instances where there are sexual harassment officers identified, they're not doing a particularly good job of effectively elevating some of these complaints. I think they recount one instance of a sexual harassment officer who basically says that they didn't want to see evidence that an employee had that they were being um, harassed. And, And that's you know, speaking of as much as a policy change that the mayor may try to make as a culture change within the D.C. government. I mean, that is, like, the really hard conversation that I would hope the mayor is leading in the wake of what we found out about one of her most, you know, trusted deputies.
0: Yeah, and to that point, Alex, something that really has jumped out at me in the Washington Post reporting was the way that the investigators got hung up on certain details that seemed to stall, you know, figuring out what actually happened. Like, they had that anecdote about a DCPS employee telling another employee, quote, I'm going to explode in your mouth, and the agency not being able to tell if that was a sexual comment, because it could have been... He could have meant it a different way, and, like, subsequently, that was found to be inconclusive of harassment. And so getting hung up on these, like, really specific details, it sounds to me like the investigation process is really maybe not as clear as we would hope. But I also wonder, like, it's good to find out more about how these claims are investigated. But I also want to make sure that, like, whatever the culture within D.C. government that allows for rampant harassment to be going on, that that is really looked at because, you know, harassment and sexual harassment on the job can completely derail people's careers. It can completely, people can like check out of their own careers. It's it's really damaging. And so it's not enough in my book to say like, oh, well, how is it being investigated? What was, hand, what was handled after it was reported? But really what is going on with the culture inside the government that this is happening at all? Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, there there are multiple ways that, you know, We could sort of approach this uh, as a city, and and very few of them I think are happening right now. I think a lot of people were hopeful in the wake of the Falcicchio revelations that this would force more of a conversation um, about how DC, um, you know, specifically the council is performing oversight of this process. As the article notes, it's certainly been a, a frustration of mine, as a nerd that reads all of the council's oversight reports, is that All of these various council committees ask questions about sexual harassment in different ways. There's nothing standardized about it. Some committees don't ask about it at all. Frankly, it depends on the council member who is leading the committee and and how committed they are to doing robust oversight. The administration has made promises about trying to standardize and centralize how this stuff gets reported so that we're taking a look at this more holistically. And they have frankly uh, fallen very short of their promise. To do so, there's not necessarily a clear pathway for who's maintaining data, who's handling these investigations. And I think, Bridget, as you identify, you know. So in some of these instances you know that these are you know people who have other jobs within these agencies their full time job is not being a sexual harassment officer and so they're going to miss stuff about uh this just as the mayor's office of legal counsel will miss stuff about this because they have a broad portfolio that doesn't just include hashing out these very thorny very personal questions and i think it it sort of starts raising the issue of is there a, a better, more centralized way to do this that gives both the council and the public more transparency into the process, but also anyone who's experienced harassment a clearer reporting pathway than exists right now?
1: So I'm assuming, Alex, what you would like to see is either a very clear communication between those things or just like one head honcho that says, you know what, if you're reporting, doesn't matter which office you're in, you report it to me and then we go investigate.
2: Yeah, I think you could make an argument for delegating more of this responsibility over to something like the Office of Human Rights, uh, which I mentioned earlier. I I think that's a real possibility. I guess I am waiting to see, you know, what sort of changes the mayor is indeed going to propose here. Um, She said she wants to clarify her order on sexual harassment. I think it would not be a bad idea if the council started pushing on that and introducing their own changes. And you saw some council members in that article, particularly Ward One Council Member Brienne Nadeau, who has been pushing on this issue. You know, making some noise, like she was going to, you know, take a lead on that. Um, so it's not inconceivable to see lawmakers act here. I guess what I would be, you know, curious about is, you know, this essentially, you know, requires some very thorny, very sensitive conversations. And the council, I am not sure, even in the wake of of the Falcicchio scandal, has been handling it with the urgency that I would have expected, given the gravity of the claims made against him.
0: When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, A Vida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So let's move on to what's happening at Metro. Alex, what can you tell us? (laughs)
2: Well, the long and short of it is that um, Metro is, um, you know, it's it's not going to be a surprise for anyone in the D.C. area to hear that Metro is in financial trouble. Uh, If you've lived here for any period of time, you are familiar with this cycle. We hear Metro is warning of dire service cuts coming if they can't find more money. uh, The politicians normally end up finding some more money for them, and the cycle repeats itself uh, a year or two later. And so I think it might be tempting for people to see this latest warnings of gloom and doom. Metro saying they would have to severely curtail service and lay off employees if they can't find $750 million as, you know, just one in a series. And to an extent it is, but I think it is perhaps the most serious financial crisis that they have faced since the, the transit system's inception, really. Um, you know, it is one of only a few transit systems in America. It may in fact be the only one to not have a dedicated source of operating revenue. Um, you may remember about five years ago, the whole region came together to give it dedicated uh, funding for maintenance and capital projects for the very first time. And that was a huge deal. But the problem is that it still doesn't have money to pay for its yearly operating budget, You know the basics of running a train and bus system. And the issue that we're seeing now is that all of this federal aid that was keeping the transit agency afloat um thanks to you know the the covid relief measures is starting to expire and yet even while ridership is recovering i mean every day metro is saying're they're, they're posting a post-pandemic ridership record it's still nowhere near its peak um, before everything shut down in 2020 and you know frankly metro just doesn't and never really has collected enough money solely from riders to sustain itself as a transit service it's a public good and And it is increasingly relied on public funding to operate. And so, you know, right now, uh, D.C. leaders, in addition to folks in Virginia and Maryland, are wrestling with the question of okay you know how can we create a dedicated source of funding that will prevent this cycle from occurring again uh and frankly it's an unpleasant conversation you know nobody is in the best financial place right now anywhere around the region in the wake of covid dc in particular as it continues to grapple with the way that the pandemic reshaped um, an economy that was previously very dependent on office workers um, regularly taking Metro in from the suburbs to spend money and pump up office building valuations in the district. Nobody's thrilled. Everybody knows that there need to be some very painful conversations. And as of yet, they just aren't happening.
1: So like you're telling me no one has just like $750 million just lying around that they want to give to Metro for, for funds. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, like what would a long term like funding solution actually look like like who gets tasked with fixing it and where does the money come from
2: Yeah, so you know there are a lot of efforts happening right now. I think at you know these regional bodies, a little more behind the scenes. You're going to probably see some reports coming out from agencies that sincerely nobody um, who is not uh, immersed in this stuff uh, has heard of, like the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments. It's a mouthful, but it's a big body of all of the regions, and I'm talking all. We're getting out to Frederick and Leesburg. This is you know a body that really takes in the the breadth of the region's leadership, which has a lot of different interests, you know, ranging from D.C. out to its, its farthest-flung suburbs. And so, you know, they're going to do their best to outline a plan and a way forward, as will uh, similar bodies uh, specifically focused in Virginia and Maryland. But, you know, something I found the more I looked into this is that this is a question that Metro and its uh, regional, you know, leaders have been wrestling with for Two decades more, you know, I found a report from 2005 that was sponsored by that same entity, the Council of Governments, that said we need a dedicated source of funding. And the only dedicated source of funding that makes sense is a region wide sales tax. They basically recommended you tack on an extra half a percent to everybody's sales tax so that way that it's equitable around the region and that money is dedicated specifically to Metro. The feds followed up with a report in 2006 saying that that was a good idea. The COG followed up with a report in 2017 saying it was a good idea. The DC council introduced legislation to that effect. The problem is that a region-wide sales tax is probably a non-starter. I mean, that's it's an extremely difficult sell to raise taxes in any political environment, but especially so when you would be trying to pass what is essentially a regressive tax Um, when it affects everyone equally. That means that it tends to fall on the shoulders of poor residents more because they have less money to spend. And so that's a hard sell somewhere like D.C. It's an even harder sell out in Virginia and Maryland where they've got more people and therefore would pay more in sales tax, but they just, by virtue of being in the suburbs, receive less metro service than D.C. You know, that that would sort of upset the funding uh, allocations that have governed, you know, how the three, you know, states pay for metro for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. So, There's no great answer. You know, I think you will see some people trying to come up with some other proposals, probably something more for the short term as well as for the long term. But uh, the the big problem at this moment is that talking about taxes is unpleasant and a lot of people don't want to do it. And in my conversations with politicians, they're still very reticent to get into the details of this. But I think everyone involved with Metro's current state of affairs knows that there needs to be serious conversations happening like right now.
0: Okay, so the first two buckets of our conversation were a little bit heavy, so I've got a little bit of comic relief for you all. As you all know, D.C., we love our monuments, but people who come from other places to check out our monuments don't always love them as much as we do. So here are some of the most ridiculous, over-the-top, funny reviews of the Washington Monument that are out there online on Yelp, Google, and TripAdvisor. So Washington Monument, we love it, we know it. This person thought it was overhyped. They wrote, overhyped, all caps, three exclamation points. Too tall, all caps, three exclamation points. Needs to be modernized, all caps, (laughs) three exclamation points. Then they go on to, to explain, very disappointing. The marble was mismatched. I would think that for such a prestigious president, they could have at least gotten enough high quality marble that actually matched. I physically hurt my neck craning to look at the monument. Could they have not made it shorter? As a 5'7 female, I felt ostracized standing next to it. It was quite intimidating. If you have kids, avoid, avoid, avoid. (laughs) They will lose their self-confidence and grow up terrified of the world. I hope you all also understand the effort that I went to to get a photo of the entire monument. The struggle is real. I felt victimized and scared and like I need a refund. I expected better service at such a hyped up establishment. I will never visit DC again due to this horrible, 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 the last one is in in all caps experience, shaking my head, do better DC and stop allowing this to happen. This person will never be back to DC. It ruined the entire city for this person.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. I just, in terms of modernizing, does anybody remember when we had that earthquake and they had like that grid light up set around the Washington Monument? Do we feel like that would assuage this person's fears? That way it looks more like, I don't know, like a neon like board or something. Does that modernize it enough? Does it hide the the, the, the mismatched marble? Does that hide it enough for them or not really?
2: Then they'd leave reviews complaining about the scaffolding. Oh my God. Uh, it, it, it's funny that you brought this up as a topic and picked the watching Monument in particular because my friends and I have a habit of, you you can look up some truly deranged Google reviews for all manner of both DC and international attractions. Like some of the most Viewed attractions on Google are like the Eiffel Tower, for instance, which I think has a lot in common with the DC, you know, or the Washington Monument. It's like, what were you expecting? <laughs> we promised you just a big tower, and I mean, for all its faults, it's certainly not the best DC monument, in my opinion. I, I think it delivers. It, you know, we, we built a big old obelisk for you, so I'm not sure what else you want. But if there's anything I've learned perusing these Google reviews, it's that that has not stopped people from sharing their thoughts.
1: Bridget, are there any other uh, funny, interesting one star reviews? Oh, yes. Oh, boy.
0: This one is not really a review of the monument. It just says, again, all caps, kebab is not the greatest food on earth. So why so many kebab food trucks? A <laughs> person doesn't like kebab. Got, got, a, got an opinion about kebab.
1: Oh, my God. Oh.
0: Uh, this one I thought was really good. The kind of people who enjoy this probably have a protractor collection. So like, just to like swipe at nerds, I think. I think that's
1: what they're trying to say. You can't insult the city of nerds. Like, de- like trivia is like our hype stuff. Like, you can't just come out here and say, we all have protractors and are nerds, come on. We are, but like, don't insult us. This one I also thought was
0: interesting. There was a lot of people who, I don't know if they're joking or not, but were confused as to like, why the monument did not look like Washington. This person writes, went to the Washington Monument because I heard it was actually very good. I have never been so disappointed in my life. It's just a damn obelisk. It doesn't even look like him. I can't even see a passing resemblance. Overall, I would skip this expensive and terrible monument and sightsee one that was made by a competent sculptor like Mount Rushmore. So yeah, a lot of people who were confused as to why it didn't look like George Washington. And then my favorite one is this last one. It seems like they're alluding to something or implying something, but I don't exactly know what. Better get a good look at this monument. If you're a patriot, you know what is planned for this structure. I don't know what he means. I don't know what he's implying, but it's it's almost like... Um, like cryptic very
2: <laughs> cryptic for well, you. Bridget, if you were a patriot, you'd know so
0: yeah, um... exactly I don't, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a real patriot. I have no idea what he means if I were a real patriot, I'd be like, uh I know I know what they've got planned for this monument. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. TBD Alex Julia, thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me back.
0: thanks so much, Bridget. And also, in two weeks, we're going to have our newsletter editor, Kayla, on the show to chat with me about the new book, Yellow Face. It takes place in D.C., and we're going to discuss how authentic it is or isn't. So if you're looking for a book to read now, check it out and then tune in. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, tell someone who hates the Washington Monument and let us know what other local spots you want to hear one-star reviews of. You can leave us a voicemail at 202-642-2654. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then.